Hi everyone, it's Harmony here. I just wanted to give you all a heads up about some content that occurs around 1.15 to 1.22. We talk about a trans-exclusionary event that was mentioned in the book, No Walls and the Reoccurring Dream. And I wanted to talk to my mom about this event because she's a feminist of a different generation and I thought it was worth talking about. During this time, my mother does misgender and then correct herself, but she initially misgenders Caitlyn Jenner. So if you find that or trans-exclusionary content to be slightly unsettling, please go ahead and skip this part. It's about seven minutes. After that, I think everything else will be fine. Okay, thanks. Bye! And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, everyone. This is Harmony and no Maggie today. It is Rebel Girls Book Club, and we are here for you on a very special day. It is Mother's Day, and I have here with me my mother. If you hear any noises in the background, it's because she's chain smoking pot right now because technology is stressful. Hi, mom. You want to introduce yourself? I'm not chain smoking pot. I'm I'm (laughs) enjoying my morning joint. (laughs) All right. So this is my mother. Mom, what's your name? Hi, I'm Alyssa, and I am the proud parent of Harmony. Today, we're going to be talking about a book that I think we both really enjoyed. It is called No Walls, and it's the Ani DeFranco memoir. It's No Walls and the Recurring Dream. Yes, No Walls and the Recurring Dream, a memoir by Ani DeFranco. So I brought my mom here today because my mother actually helped form my love of reading and formed a big sense of feminism for me. And most of the songs I remember from my early youth were Ani DeFranco songs. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to ask a few questions just so you guys can get a kind of sense for her right now. So, Mommy, what is the first book you remember reading? Well, the first book I remember like reading over and over again. And I know it's not the first book I read. That was probably more along the lines of Dr. Seuss. Yes. But it was, I got it when I was seven, and it was A Child's Garden of Verses by Robert Louis Stevenson. Oh, cool. And I just loved it. I particularly love the poem Bed by Day. Is this one of the books that we had in our library growing up? Because I know we had some really old books that were all like fairy tales and stuff. We didn't have this one. Maybe we rented it, though. I mean, we would check it out from the library from time to time. But I don't think I ever found a version as beautiful as the one I received. I got it when I was seven for my first Holy Communion. Oh, okay. Yes. Bed by Day is a poem about a child going to bed in the summer. Okay. Is it like a religious book? No. Bed by Day. I can recite it for you. All right. Yes. Recite the book, the poem, the verse. In winter, I get up at night and dress by yellow candlelight. 
In summer, quite the other way. I have to go to bed by day. I have to go to bed and see the birds still hopping on the tree, or hear the grown-up people's feet still going past me on the street. And doesn't it seem odd to you when all the sky is clear and blue? And I should so much like to play to have to go to bed by day. Don't you remember that? I used to say it to you all the time. Maybe vaguely. It kind of. It kind of rings a bell vaguely. But why is that one? Why was that one your favorite when you were young? You know, I really liked the illustration that was there. <laughs> yeah, it was this little girl in her nightgown looking out her window at the blue skies with the little bluebird on the tree. And, Aww. you know, I'm sure that wasn't in his original version at all. So, but it was the illustration I really liked. And, you know, I mean, the sun stays up late in the summer. And I, I've always liked the meter and rhythm of poetry, which is why I so loved um, Poe as a teenager. I didn't know that. You loved Poe as a teenager? I don't feel like we ever read Poe. Oh, and so his, my favorite bit by him is actually a poem as well, and it's called The Haunted Mansion. And I'm pretty sure it's in the fall of the House of Usher, you know, a hideous throng thrush out forever and laugh but smile no more. Wow, that's very dark. You were angsty. <laughs> yeah, the haunted mansion was, you know, I, I was into the cure and they were very emo before emo or goth was a thing. Wow. But they weren't my favorite band. You know, I'm more of the hippie jam band. But yeah, the haunted palace is about a person going crazy. You were like, oh, this is some dark shit that I can really like relate to in my angsty teenage soul. Grandma turned me on to it. I could see that. My grandmother, for listeners, I think I've talked about her reading style a little bit before, but she's really all into the mystery and the dark and the Stephen King. Okay, so what are your five favorite books? So I don't know if I could give a definitive answer on my five favorite because there's probably something out there I haven't read yet that I'll like that'll become a favorite, but I really love Tom Robbins. <laughs> And I think, you know, of his books, Jitterbug Perfume is probably one of my favorite. And and he did um, a self-help book called Fuck Yes under a pseudonym. That was a really fun read. Um, you know, of course, the Harry Potter books. Yes. Are, yeah. <laughs> And so there's more of five of them, so I'm That's over true. right there. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to give us two more? Harry Potter doesn't count as one? That's good? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I liked, there was a lot of stuff that influenced me. But yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I can get too far into it right now. Okay. Because I'm smoking pot and drinking coffee. As it's it's early where she is. And she also lives in a state where pot is legal, I would like to add. So <laughs> did your mom ever read to you when you were little? Not really. Yeah, that's weird because grandma loves to read. She would always read in front of me, but not to me. And then, you know, as I got older, she would recommend books to me. And oftentimes they were above my level. So that probably helped me. That's really cool. So even though she didn't read to you, do you think like seeing her read helped influence your potential level books? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The other thing that the other example, sorry to interrupt, is that grandma read as an escape. Okay. 
And um, I think that seeing her read that way taught me how you can escape into literature. That's true. And that can be really healthy, you know, if you're in a situation where you're not feeling like there is an escape for you. Like, I think that that builds some sort of resilience for a lot of children. When you were like a little, little kid, were you into reading or did that love of reading develop later in life? Oh, I was into it. You were? Yeah. You were a proud book nerd? I was. I mean, and I had a, I had a wide variety of things that I read. And I, I read a bunch of pop culture stuff too, you know, like magazines and such. No, I was into it. It was, you know, we didn't have the internet or anything like that when I was little. And there wasn't enough, you know, like you couldn't really zone out on TV all day back then. There was only a few hours of programming. So I think probably a lot more people read more back then, but I don't know. I have no scientific basis for that statement. No, I don't. I mean, <laughs> anecdotally, I have, as you know, three younger siblings, and they were not as enthusiastic as reading as even I was, but I also didn't have access to TV until I was probably about like 10 or at least the cable or like nine, maybe. So I do think that that does help. You know, it's, it's hard to like, sometimes if you have an option that's easier to turn your brain off, it's easier, I think, to just go and binge watch TV. And it, but you know, I mean, it just destroys your circadian rhythms to do that. I mean, when I start binge watching something, it's like, it's almost like a drug. It is kind of like a drug. Although I think that reading could do certain, like it, it affects Maggie that way it, when well, she reads. Certainly, like, you know, like, I mean, all of the Harry Potter books were like that for me. Like, I literally couldn't put them down. <laughs> and you remember, you'd get really pissed at me for reading ahead after you fell asleep. That's true. That's true. That's actually how we stopped reading Harry Potter together. Because eventually I got to the age where I could, like, really read them by myself. And then I was like, I don't want to share this with mom because she'll spoil shit for me. <laughs> So why was it important to you to read to me every night? Because my earliest memories are like being two years old and you reading to me because you read to me a lot. Well, for one, I considered it a great privilege to be able to read to you. Children's literature is so full of examples or parables, you know, mm -hmm. and the illustrations and artwork in children's literature is beautiful. You know, it's there's some really good books out there, but you know, it's a way to teach you. You know, I didn't have any formula, formal education on how to teach you, but I knew if I read to you that I could teach you that way and that if I instilled a love of storytelling and literature that you would be an intelligent being later on in life. And so, and also, I mean, we were really poor, and we moved a lot because of the poverty. And uh, but we always had a library card. And it was just a really it was a good way to keep you stimulated and expose you to different things for free. <laughs> That's fair. Support your local library. Because it does help. And to be fair, like I, you know, I had movies and stuff and I do. I did love movies and I still love TV. But oh, and we got those reading. from the library, too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but reading was always my like preferred method as a child to escape or play even like I did play a lot. But 
if it was between a toy or a book, I think that my preference was a book from what I remember. <laughs> yes, Burlington, Vermont has a great library. <laughs> it's the children's library is amazing. It is amazing. What are your favorite books that we've read together? Well, the Harry Potter books, for sure. <laughs> That's it? Just the Harry Potter um, books? Well, no, there was a bunch of books that we read together, and I really liked everything that was in that that vein of books that was coming out around that time. However, for picture books, do you remember that book called Remember the Light? It was yes. so hippie. I loved that book. <laughs> I loved that book, and too. There was a bunch of uh, picture books that we had, like, All I See is Part of Me. Remember that yeah. book? I am that part of All I See, and All I See is Part of Me. <laughs> I, that that one and the illustrations in that one were amazing. Yeah, and anything Dr. Seuss, of course. That's true. You know, yes. I mean his, and and I don't mean like I mean Cat in the Hat and stuff like that. But I'm talking like the Sneeches. Sneeches were great. Yeah, the Lorax. And, oh, the Lorax and you know the stuff, all the places you'll go. All the Places You'll Go is another good one. I think for me, my favorite books were always Prince Siddhartha. Is that what it was called? It wasn't, not the Herman Hess version, but we had an illustrated version about Siddhartha's oh, yeah. life. Siddhartha, yeah, I I was, I had a big issue with that. Remember, I was reading it to you guys, because I read it to you and your little brother. Um, and, you know, Buddha, he basically, he, he ditched his, his wife and his kid and didn't come back. Until the kid was, I was like, oh my God, he's a deadbeat dad. He is, And I yeah. had a hard time with that. Really hard time. You had to read that book over and over and over again because I really, really remember it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we read it at least seven times and it wasn't a short book. No, and it was I a chapter book. I, I don't know if I still have it. Did I give it to you? I may have no, lent it. I may have lent it out. I mean, people take stuff, you know, I'm sorry. Mom, if but I ever have I a kid somebody. and I can't pass them that that book, if I ever have a kid and I can't give them that specific copy <laughs> of that book, we might have a problem. The other one that I really, really loved was Charlotte's Web. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> we read that one over and over again. And we had gotten that. We got a big... You know, remember, we got that when you were like three or four. And yeah. then we had other versions. So we started reading that really young. It was really <laughs> fitting how you ended up being Fern. Yes. So what she's talking about, when I was in middle school, there was a community theater production of Charlotte's Web, and I ended up being Fern. And which, maybe that like increased my love of Charlotte's Web even more. I don't know. <laughs> Next question. Let's see. Do you think there's a relationship between reading and feminism? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a relationship between reading and all the isms. Racism? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're reading. That's but, fair. You know, but yeah, I think, you know, I mean, it's the written word. It's, it's ideas on paper and it's powerful. You know, all the isms. So that being said, were you picky about what you chose to read to me when I was really young because I really don't remember there being a lot of censorship in terms of my reading which I loved but like was that highly curated oh yes <laughs> good try to find a reproduction of that remember the light book 
That's true. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, certainly a lot of the books when I would, you know, I'm from Virginia, the Tidewater area. And so when we would go and visit my family, I would go to that bookstore at the Heritage Foundation, which, by the way, has the largest metaphysical library in the world. Okay, so this is a hippie bookstore? No, it was an Edgar Casey thing for the, it was, they're called the Association for Research and Enlightenment, and they make that lovely rose water spray that everyone loves. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so Edgar Casey lived in Virginia Beach. They have a bookstore there, and they have this health food store with, like, a really cool bookstore and that big crystal. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, there is a big crystal. But um, I got a lot of your books there, and I did actually, yeah, I totally curated the things that you read. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but we had a lot of Richard Bach. Who actually, and I would have to put Jonathan Livingston Siegel in the top five. By Richard Bach. He's the guy that did The Illusionist, right? He did I Jonathan. Think so. And you're and he he did a children's book that your dad sent you called There's No Such Place as Far Away. Oh, okay. Interesting. Oh no, I'm sorry. It's Illusions. The uh this oh, the was adventures one of my favorite. Of a, yeah, Illusions, yeah. the Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah. Yes. I don't think we read that one together. I think I picked that up. So one of the great things about my childhood growing up is that we had a shit ton of books. We moved all the fucking time, but our oh, books always so came many books. <laughs> like just like the living room was full of books. Like it was a personal library it has made me a book hoarder to this day, but I could always like, once I was able to read by myself and older, I could always just like pick something up. There was never, there was never nothing to read. <laughs> And this was one of those books that I really uh, shaped my perspective in middle school. <laughs> the illusions of or illusions, the adventures of a reluctant messiah. Yeah, I think I thought I was a messiah for a long time, mom, because you gave me a lot of like light and love spiritual books coming up. <laughs> I mean, I, we're all kind of messiahs. Okay. All right. So. This is kind of along the vein of what we were just talking about, but how did reading help you instill certain values in your children? So it doesn't just have to be me, because I know you have two other kids. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, as a single parent, you don't have a lot of backup and society hates you if you're a single woman. Now, single dads, there it's a whole different rap. I mean, they're <laughs> like, you know, totally respected if they stick around at all. You know, yeah. but the single mother is the scourge. You know, yes. we carry all the blame. And so, <clears throat> you know, you need some reinforcement because you don't have another person there to be like, yes, this is the right way. But if you can get a book, you can be like, oh, my gosh, you know, like, not only is this the right way, but it's in this book, too, honey. Look, <laughs> let me read <laughs> you this story. Be true. Here, have a book about <laughs> potty training. Oh, remember everybody put. <laughs> You remember the Mr. Rogers one where he calls it about BMs? No, I don't remember that. I do not remember that. Oh, that's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> Bowel movements or BMs. And then in the rest in the book. It's... <laughs> oh, goodness. That one must not have been one of my favorites. I remember the Miss Piggy one and the little princess in her toilet seat. Oh, yeah. Bye bye diapers. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. My mother actually, funny story, everyone. When I was like two or three, I don't know how old because I was very young and can't actually remember. 
I remember getting these books and I kept on like getting all of these potty training books, but I didn't realize that my mother was trying to push me to potty train. It happened eventually when she told me, hey, you need to potty train. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about feminism. So what's your relationship to feminism? You were potty trained by three. It's not like you were that old. I'm not sure if I can quantify that in words. (laughs) I do consider myself to be a feminist. And, you know, it's it's not the easiest road to go on because we live in a patriarchal society. Did you always consider yourself a feminist, though, like when you were young? Or was there a moment where you were like, yes, I am a feminist? Yeah, I did. And interestingly enough, you know, I mean, having grown up in the time and place where I did, you know, I just got objectified a lot as a as a child, as a young child. I remember being uh, in high school and realizing that guys didn't like me when I spoke my mind and when I showed that I was smart. Like they really didn't like it. So I did a thing of of uh, maybe I was like sophomore year. I don't know. I used to dye my hair blonde. I tried to play dumb and all the guys liked me, you know, and I was like Miss Sophomore or whatever. <laughs> it was ridiculous. You were like, wow, men are easy, easy to manipulate. No, I wasn't like that because I was such an approval seeker and I, I had some real hangups with that. We don't need to get into it. But I definitely, I mean, you know, it's kind of like Ani says, you know, they'd prefer you were dirty and smiling instead. They don't want you to be smart. You know, that's from that song, I'm Not a Pretty Girl. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, and you, you get told that so much as a child. Yeah, I decided sometime around the age of 16 or 17 to that I wasn't ever going to dye my hair again and that they could sit and spin. Because I was just going to, you know, follow my own truth. But that did get me into a lot of trouble because it was very unconventional at the time. To, like, not dye your hair? Or, well... To live the lifestyle that I was living. Was that, like, when you transitioned into hippie lifestyle? Pretty much. I mean, and, you know, it was very, like, survivalist type thing. And, you know, and being an activist and trying to fight for what was right and learning the truth about so many things and realizing that I had been lied to and that his story was just his story, not actually what went down. And just white man's story, too. Yeah. You know, and they don't really teach you that growing up, especially where I grew up in the South, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's such a conundrum the way the whole system is set up. And I I don't want to get into that either because that's a whole other show on its own. But um, yeah, you know, I don't know if you remember when you got baptized at the Unitarian Church, how I had your dad on one side and your brother's dad on the other side. And even at the liberal-ass Unitarian Universalist Church in Burlington, Vermont, people had a big issue with that, you know? I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. My mom was a badass, everyone, just so you know. 
there was one lady who wrote me and was like, you were so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I had a lot of passion uh, when I was younger and it was important to me to stay true to my values, even if it costs me income or connections or notoriety or whatever. Yeah, you're very passionate. I think you're still pretty passionate. I mean, like, you know, my mother is uh, reaching middle age and she's young, but she's still and, and has calmed down a lot because I lived a pretty wild childhood because she was very, very into her ideals and very young. But like she still when she goes out, she still like sends crazy postcards to like Republican senators and stuff, telling them to like take their hands off her body. She'll go to the bar and send postcards to crazy Republicans just to give you guys all. (laughs) So, you know, okay. So let me just give a little free press to the standing stone brewery. You know, they're owned by a Republican and that's one of the reasons I love to do that. They have, (laughs) um, they will send a postcard to anyone and, our my representative currently is Greg Walden, and sadly, you know, he's decided to sell his soul to the Republican devil. And not to say that Republicans are bad, because I have voted Republican in my life. And um, how long ago was that? <laughs> it depends on you know the candidate and the person. It's just that was pre Republican Revolution pre-Newt Gingrich. He pretty much destroyed the world. But um, I digress. <laughs> My point you is know, she's very passionate. It was, yeah, it's important to make your, your voice heard because everything about it, everything they do, and this isn't just the Republicans, it's, it's the Democrats too, it's systemic. It's all designed to discourage us from using our voices. It's designed to make us think that our vote doesn't matter. So therefore, we stay home and don't vote. And um, I think it's important to let them know that we do vote and we're watching. No, I don't have a political action committee or corporate cash, but I matter And I am going to fulfill my civic duties and let you know that you're fucking up, which, you know, I, Greg Walden being my congressperson, I have to do often, you know, we could have. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so ridiculous what's going on. Okay. Kind of along those values, um, like along that frame of reference, I want to know what your mother passed on to you about ideas about women's roles, like positive and negative. And you don't have to get like too deep into it if you don't feel like it. But like, what are some of the, give give us some of the gists. Well, you know, she definitely, she had some passion when she was younger and she saw herself as a fem- feminist. Although, I mean, she could have definitely taken it 20 times times further than she did but um she did some important things I remember when you know she had to fight for the right to like wear pants to work (laughs) how silly is that that is silly you know (laughs) and this was like in the 70s or the 80s yeah I think it was like right right around 1980 when she got to wear pants to work maybe 82 anyways and she was really against 
the blue laws. When I was a little girl in Virginia, all the stores were closed on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And she didn't think that was fair because, you know, I mean, where are the, where are the Jewish people going to shop? Saturday is their Sabbath day. <laughs> and the seventh day Adventist <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah, you know, she, so she says these, it's a different, you know, she does, people when they're being racist don't always realize it. And that's why it's important to self-examine. Yes. You know, so that you can uh, be more sensitive. But um, yeah, she, you know, she, she did do some things. Um, She was a single mom and for most of it, I mean, but the other thing that I'd say one negative aspect was the martyrdom, Mm -hmm. you know, she's really into being the murderer as a feminist and, I don't think that's how it has to be. I think that's also maybe partially generational. I mean, like, I didn't, I used to use the word victim when we were talking about sexual assault and domestic violence. And I, as a reporter, had to use that word too, because like, that was the style book word. But it wasn't until like a few years ago that I realized that I came across the term survivor. Like that is a word that is used now. And I don't know if that was always the case like a decade ago. No, I mean, we still tend towards victim blaming and shaming. Yeah. But, like, but, you know, it does kind of, to relate it to the book, you know, Ani talks a lot about how her mom was a murderer <laughs> and yeah. how despite all her efforts, she ended up in that same pattern. You know, I mean, she fixes it, but it's interesting women aren't taught that it's okay to be like direct about your problems or emotions. So I think sometimes it's like, it's empowering in a way because it's an acknowledgement that this stuff is happening to you. But then that's like the only way people are, are taught to deal with this oppression is to be like, Oh, poor me. And I think that's probably a problem that women have inherited because of patriarchy like if they do oh poor me i have to do all the housework they're not directly telling their husbands hey you need to do the fucking housework but maybe they can guilt them into it yeah i remember specifically being told at one point um to just ask men questions about themselves don't burden them with your thoughts yeah Men like to talk about themselves. So be interested in them and ask them questions about themselves. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a different generation and with you as a mother and like still came across dating advice like that. Not as directly (laughs) sexist, but it would be like, ask your partner about themselves and uh, let them win the game and stuff like that. So it still definitely exists and still is a problem. Um, I wanted to know what ideas you have tried to pass down to your children. Like what are the, just give me a few core values that you really needed to pass down as a mother. Well, respect for our earth and the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it would horrify me to think that any of you guys didn't recycle or just respect the sacredness of the gifts that we have here, you know, protect and preserve. That's a huge, huge one. And then, you know, another one would be to have empathy and compassion, because I think it's vital 
for successful relationships. And I do think that, I mean, we live in a democracy and I think that we need to exercise our civic duties and make informed and responsible decisions and vote. And so I really, I hope you guys are in to join the fight. <laughs> I'm ready. Sign me up for the revolution. Getting my safe houses ready. All right. So what is your greatest weapon as a feminist mother, Ben? Oh. Um, or tool. Know. It doesn't have to be a weapon. Weapon sounds violent. <laughs> the weapon for dismantling the patriarchy pushed upon your children. Oh, gosh. I didn't see that one in the prep outline. My greatest weapon as a feminist mother. Um, I think it's my resilience and my ability to rely on myself. Okay, good. Independence. Yeah, you know, I mean, I have a lot of, I can do a lot of stuff. You can. And I, and you guys have seen that. (laughs) (laughs) You're like superhuman sometimes. So, um, you know, I can, I learn how to do all kinds of stuff that needs to be done. Because there's, you know, it needed to be done. It needs to be done. And it's hard to ask for help. So maybe that would be one thing that I wish I had done better is, you know, give you a better example of how to ask for help. I mean, I don't know about the other kids, but I feel like I'm pretty good at asking for help. (laughs) Maybe Mm. it's generational. Okay. So let's move on to your relationship with Ani DeFranco. So as I said before, Ani DeFranco was some of like the first music that I really remember hearing. I know there was a bunch of other hippie jam band stuff, but for me, I resonated with Ani because they're simplistic lyrics. You know, I like the tone. It's like folk punk, which is really up right on my wheelhouse. And I remember my mom playing her songs on guitar all the time. So Let's talk. Yeah. Like, what is your relationship, Donnie DeFranco? When did you discover her? I'm in the early 90s. Okay. So during her heyday? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I just, I don't know where I came across her. Maybe I used to go to all those festivals. I'm sure you remember. But um, yeah, I'd say early to mid, or maybe more mid-90s. I think it's probably more like 94 when I really started listening. And then, yeah, she just, I really resonated with her lyrics and the things that she had to say. And she's a badass guitar player. Yeah. I mean, she's got a really unique style. Mm-hmm. And being from Virginia, I had this, there was a acquaintance that I had and college who used to play guitar and it's funny how much their styles are similar and he covers some of her songs now I don't know yeah or I've heard because she sounds so full to be one person and she can and I always I don't know I kind of felt she was just such a badass example of all of the ideals that um I was trying to live and I remember talking about her with friends. <laughs> Anyways, Jennifer thought Ani had been divinely guided. She's like, 
Oh boy. Because, <laughs> like, you know, I was like, it's amazing how much she's been able to accomplish without, you know, sucking off the tit of the man. Yep. However, you know, she does mention in her book that she did always have a. She had like a male champion, always. It's all, always. An yeah. older male champion, too. But, you know, that's that was one of the hard things for me when I was reading the book. Mm. was this older male champion because I had a lot of predatory older males who tried to be my champion. Yeah. And my parents didn't really, I mean, it wasn't a big deal back then. It, like perversion was more okay, I guess. It was disgusting though. You know, like there were guys that were like in their 20s trying to date me when I was like 14. Ugh, that's really gross and really, really disgusting. Yeah. That's not cool. Yeah, and I think, you know, and even the boyfriend that I did have when I was 14 was 19. And I think that my parents were relieved about that because he drove me around. So they didn't have to. And it's just horrifying, isn't it? It's <laughs> it's definitely horrifying, yeah. I can't imagine, but, yeah. <laughs> but it was, I mean, yeah, it it didn't carry the same weight that it does today. Although I do feel like we're paying with a pound of flesh for the Me Too movement now that we have two people accused of sexually assault as, you know, to choose from as candidates now. Yeah. That's that's a rough one. So just to clarify in case somebody hasn't heard, um, I mean we also we I, I, I assume everyone's heard that Donald Trump has sexually assaulted multiple times or at least been accused of sexual assault multiple times. We all saw the pussy grabbing video. Um, Joe Biden has also been accused of sexual assault by one of former Senate staffer Tara Reid has accused Joe Biden of sexual assault. And yeah. he says it unequivocally didn't happen. But whatever. I mean, I'm not <laughs> going to get into that. It's just it's just a tough pill to swallow that we can't, you know, we can't have someone not accused of sexual assault. Why can't we have a woman? Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I yeah. Yeah. Anyways, let's go back to Annie DeFranco. Is she your age? She's four years older than me. So we're pretty much... Yeah, that we have a lot in common. And in reading the book, it's like some of the stuff that she was doing is like what I was doing then. It was, you know, like some of the activism and protesting, you know, I was doing the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> living on the road. And living on the road. I mean, I would have lived in a house if I could have afforded it. I agree. Okay, so I'm going to give a quick summary for the book in case people haven't read it. But Ani DeFranco, she's a very popular indie folk rock artist from the 90s. And the memoir details her childhood up to shortly after September 11th, 2001. So it's just like, yeah, probably until her 20s. She would be in her 20s at that point. Um, the memoir also details what made her such a radical feminist because she is a really radical feminist and has been a activist figure for since the 90s. Um, since I was alive, my mother discovered her in 94. That was the year I was born. Uh, she, she also talks a lot about hierarchy throughout the book. And about like how her beliefs were shaped. So she gets into sexism. She gets into racism. She talks a lot about criminal justice reform. That's a really big thing for her and her record label. They've done a lot of work surrounding criminal justice reform. 
Well, and they, they employed a lawyer at the Southern Law Center, right? Was it? I'd have to look at the exact. It's not the Poverty Center. It was like the sub. It, it's another place that like works specifically to end the death penalty. Yeah. And she's so interesting, you know, like touring with the Rebirth Brass Band. You know, she was promoting them back in the mid-90s before they had the notoriety that they really have now. And she did do a tour with Maceo Parker. And she got to meet Prince and play with him. I mean, you guys got to go buy this book. (laughs) It's just amazing. And it's funny, too, you know, um, you can make a lot of assumptions about somebody who leaves home at the age of 16. Yeah. You know, and she is so eloquent and so educated. Like, she's such a profound writer. She really knows how to tell a story. Yeah. Writing poetry and prose is completely different than, you know, writing a novel or a memoir. It is, but she was still able to do it. I mean, self-expression is just kind of, it seems like she was angling about it throughout the book, like, the ability to express herself like was her life's goal and purpose. And she talks about that in her songs too. She talks about like just being a girl who wants to be heard, which is something I really relate to as somebody in the writing profession. Yeah. And you know, I got to say she's, she's tiny. She's not like the (laughs) tallest. She's really, she's so dynamic and seeing her live is amazing. It's the energy that she evokes. She's very aggressive. I don't know. I, I I don't find her to be aggressive at her shows these days. I mean, it's very welcoming. Well, you know, not she, in like a bad way, but I think that like she wants to surprise you. And I think like when I saw her when I was like five, so it's probably not the best memory. She is like, she's aggressively like herself is what I mean, which I think kind of gets back into what you were saying about like people not wanting you to talk about your opinions when you were young. Like with Ani DeFranco, it was just kind of like a fuck you. Yeah, and that's still the case. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> the patriarchy does not want to hear us. Yeah. They want Handmaiden's Tale, you know? Like, and they're gaining ground. They're so well organized. <sighs> Anyways. I'm sorry, Mama. Well, you're trying to contribute to the fall of the patriarchy here, I believe. I mean, that's the whole goal of this podcast. You know, we're going to read, yes, about literature and a lot of it is fictitious, but we're talking about important things. And I think the act of talking and analyzing and communing together and creating some sort of solidarity is really important. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) IDs are important, goddammit. So... Let's get more into the book. So was there anything that surprised you about this book? You kind of talked a lot about her male champions. Oh, God. When I saw the picture of, (laughs) yeah, you know, the picture of the boyfriend. No, he wasn't the boyfriend. Oh, no, no, not the boyfriend. It was. um, She did have an older boyfriend, though, who was abusive, who I think was around his age. He was like in his 30s. And even though, I mean, yeah. The picture of Michael and the picture of, uh, anyways, it's interesting. I liked the picture section because you could see that she clearly grew up at the same time as me, especially with the 1986 
hairdo, but the picture of her with Scott was like, whoa. And yeah. um wait, was it Scott? Because Scott was a boyfriend. But Scott then was a boyfriend. He's still a lot, he's a lot older than her. He's like Oh. I mean, I knew he was a little bit older, but she didn't meet him until college. There was a man. Actually, she met him when she, actually they're from the same area. And she talks about it at the end. So I don't want to ruin it, but she, he organized a show that she played when she was just 11. He was in college and it was a Save the Whales show. And then um, they met again when she was 16. But I mean, they're family. I mean, it's, he'd seemed like he stepped in. He seems, it, I'm not going to analyze their relationship. I don't have any, but um, you know. So I listened to the, my mother read this book, hard copy um, from, I think like her last Mother's Day gift. And I read this book through audio, which was really cool because Ani was like physically reading it. But my understanding was when she was like 11, she met this older man who introduced her to like all these grown up musicians. And there was an instance uh, later on when she was like 16 where they or I don't know, she was young, but she wasn't like baby young, if that makes sense. They they kissed and then he backed off immediately after, I think, because it was so because he watched her grow up. Back to the male champion thing, though, that's a really interesting aspect because I know, um, I mean, up until recently, I was going through the journalism career path. And even when I was like, even when I was in high school and stuff, I had more male mentors than I ever did female mentors. And I don't know if that was partly my own internalized sexism, but like Ani is very much, even though she is such a great empowering figure for feminists, like she travels with a lot of men and she does always have these male champions, which I think can be useful. Like it's nice to have somebody in a higher position of power backing you up. But yeah, most of my mentors in my career field and like throughout my young adulthood life, not to say that they were all men because I have had some really great female mentors, have been men. And it wasn't predatory at all, at least that I picked up on. I don't think it was predatory at all. I think it was very much like a father-daughter sort of thing. I wondered, like, why you think that is. Like, why is it? Well, I think that's actually a casual. That's because of the patriarchy. I Women, especially, I mean, if you look at women in the workplace, they don't do a lot of mentoring of other women. They're starting to. My, they, I mean, well, we're starting to, you know, and like there's a women's conference that we have here in the Rogue Valley every year where we, you know, but it's only one weekend where we get together or one day, actually, where we get together and talk about supporting other women in the workplace. And I think that largely it's because the only way you seem to be able to get anywhere in this capitalistic society is if you behave like a white man. Yeah. And, you know, so women who do get to positions of power or notoriety don't have the incentive to to help other women. There can only be one. Yeah, they are much less likely to promote a friend or a fellow female colleague than a male. Women in positions of power. And it's, you know, I mean, guys always bro up, but we really need to start sistering up. You know, and, and the other reason is a woman tries much harder to be fair mm -hmm. and questions and is, you know, worried about being transparent 
you know, whereas like a guy will much more easily be like, this is, you know, my bro's friend or this is my, you know, friend and, and mentor that person and bring them along in their career path. It's something I'd like to see change. And I'm going to keep going to the conference every year in our valley. I do think it is like it, Maggie and I have spoken about this on the podcast before, but anecdotally, I do think it is changing simply because like, I mean, my friends and I, we talk each other up every chance we can get and we like self-promote each other all the time. And those are pr- primarily women, but also like my first mentor, whoever. You have a really special group of friends, though. Sorry. I do. I do. I have a really great group of friends. My friends are good people. But uh, I do think anecdotally, like it is changing. And I think it's probably because we do have women in more positions of power because women are educated better than men now. I don't know if that was the case when you were in college, like when you were my age, at least. Um, No. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Men don't get as many degrees, generally speaking, as women. Uh, It's still harder for us to reach positions of power for a variety of reasons. But we are the we're the highly educated sex and particularly black women are like really rocking education. But also, like, I think my male mentors were kind of people that I sought out and chose when I was young, even in the journalism field. And there were there has always been in my field, like more positions of power held by men than women. Whereas like my first female mentor that I really can think of did occur in college. And she was an older millennial who felt older to me because she was like married and has a kid now and stuff. And she like chose to mentor me. Like she just plucked me up and then like positioned me in all of these great things. And I didn't even have to do anything. Like it wasn't any work at all, which was never something I had dealt with before. Because with my male mentors, usually it was like a process of they liked me, you know, I was cute and like we were not in a weird way, but like I was cute and funny and I endeared myself to them. And then like after that had to prove myself. You are really cute. I am very cute. Yes, that's true. It's it's the puppy dog guys. <laughs> Ani DeFranco, though, is interesting to me, too, because she by aggressively being herself, she kind of made herself stand out from other women. And maybe that also helped propel her into the positions that she's had. It also does seem, too, that a lot of her male mentors were interested in other things from her <laughs> as well. And she did a pretty good job, I think, throughout her life as like establishing boundaries, but maybe used that to her advantage a little bit, which I don't see anything wrong with. Let's move on, though, and talk about some other aspects of the book, because we've got a lot. Okay. Okay. We just had a break. We're back now. My mom has a muffin. She's sto- she was stoked on Ani DeFranco's Utah Phillips album. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> Which she talks about in the book. So did Utah ever have any other albums? Yeah. I mean, he'd been, you know, he's been a folk singer on the scene for, for many years when he met Ani in the... I think they must have met in the early 90s or mid 90s. I don't know. I remember the Utah Phillips album. Here, let me Google when it came out. I want to say like 97 or 98. She made him sound like quite a character. And yeah, pretty I, he, cool. Yeah. <laughs> he sounded a little, um, he sounded like kind of like a grumpy old man, like a radical grumpy old man. Uh, in the Mother Jones vein. Ah, uh, yeah. That reminds me of one of my male mentors, Bob, uh, Bob Adet. He's a grumpy old man in the Mother Jones vein. 
Remember we used to have a subscription to Mother Jones magazine? I do remember that actually, very <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> um, okay, so while you're looking that up, let's see. What did you feel about her depiction of her sexuality? Because Audie DeFranco is kind of famously bisexual. Um, she has only married men. She's married two men, I believe. And I think she's monogamous now. I don't know. I don't yeah, know she's though. monogamous, but that doesn't make you less bisexual. Although she has been interviewed and said that she doesn't really consider herself necessarily as queer anymore, which I think is fine because sexuality is fluid. But I wanted to talk to you about her depiction of her sexuality. Like, does it resonate with you? Well, it's pretty much what everybody else was doing at that time that I knew. Everyone was just (laughs) like the Tom Robbins sort of thing. Like everyone had boyfriends and girlfriends. Well, it was it was not on. I mean, not boyfriends and girlfriends per se. But I mean, in the scene that I was running in, it wasn't that uncommon. Okay, and then would you be okay with your daughters? because I know you have multiple, carrying this attitude that Ani exudes to sex and to sexual partners, because she does often have multiple throughout this book anyway. I really don't like to think about that. You know, I mean, I just, I would, this is what I would have to say about any of my children and their sexual relations is practice safe sex. Well, I mean... <laughs> and, and, you know, and don't discuss it with me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. So this is, I'm just kidding. But, you know, like, I don't really care. I would just, as long as you're practicing safe sex and whatever you're doing is fulfilling to you, I would hate to think of it not being a positive experience for you. As long okay. as it's a positive and safe experience, I don't really care. All right. So as a mother... As a mother, in terms of like, because I think that, you know, talking about sexuality is important, not just like being gay or straight or bi or whatever, um, or pan, but like talking about having a safe, positive sexual experience is important. Is that something that you've tried to talk about with your children? And like, what is important to you? And because I know that sex is uncomfortable to talk about with your kids. And I know I'm talking to you about it on a podcast. But like, what what is like, as a mother, what is the important thing for you? You want people you want them to be comfortable and you want it to be positive. And have you communicated I've, that? Yeah. And I think that another thing I've talked to you about is like a basis of mutual respect being one yeah. of the most important things. Like as long as Most of the other stuff, if there's like, if everything is based on a mutual respect, most of the other stuff can be worked out. Okay. So mutual respect, that's important. What about things like consent? Like, would you, you know, you have two almost grown children. You have me and I'm like in my 20s and you have a son who is also newly 20. But you also have someone who's still a child who who is like 10 years old. Um, when she gets older, will you have conversations with her about like how to ask for consent and talk about consent and stuff like that? Yeah. And actually I plan on getting her, um, into this. Yeah, I do. And, um, I'm smart enough to know that I need help on this. So there's this program here called Our Whole Lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's offered through the Unitarian Universe. Actually, here it's at the UCC Church, but we do it um, 
you know, it's used in the Unitarian Universalist. And it's, um, it's here, I think they do it in sixth grade. So I'm going to have her do that program. But yeah, I mean, I have to have those conversations with her now, just because we do live in an online world. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't want to objectify her, but she looks a lot older than she is. Yeah. And, you know, she's already somewhat of a target for exploitation because um, she's developed beyond the average person for her age. Okay. Okay. But even if she weren't, she could still be a target probably, right? Because we... Yeah. And because she does, because she does online gaming, we have to talk to her about this often And I've, you know, tried to discuss the way that predators disguise themselves as children and how, like, you know, I mean, and consent is a big part of that conversation. But, yeah, I think consent is, it's a touchy subject because it's it's traumatic, you know, especially if you've ever been violated. And people react to it in different ways. You know, some people will fight and some people will just freeze up. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that, you know, like consent has to be verbalized and being silent is not a basis of consent. And I've discussed that one more so with your brother probably than I have with you and your sister is not super old enough yet. I mean, she's only 10. That's fair. But you did make me like one of the things that I will say on air, even though I'm sure it's uncomfortable for you. I apologize. Is that when I was like a teenager and, you know, really blossoming and my own sexuality, which was hard for both my parents because I was very vocal about it. I You did like make sure that I was comfortable like you did talk about that a little bit with me and tried to support me in your own way with that to be like listen the important thing is that you know what you want which I thought was really positive like that did that did help affirm me even though I was kind of already there and was like I'm gonna do this thing and also everyone should be talking about sexuality because America is fucked up and we need to be talking about sexuality more that was helpful so thank you. <laughs> I also want to talk to you a little bit about Ani as an adventurer. So Ani at one point in this book mentions if there's anything she wants her daughter to take away from this book is that like her daughter can go on all the adventures that Ani had, do all of the crazy things Ani did, but don't don't hitchhike, she says. And that was, I mean, you and my father have both hitchhiked in the past, I believe. And you've, you guys have both made it very clear to me that that is a dangerous situation. But the idea that, like, I haven't hitchhiked the way that your father has. I only hitchhike. (laughs) It's different when you live in a ski town and you're hitchhiking to the mountain to get to your shift. Yeah. Still dangerous. But it's not, like, the same as, like, hitchhiking a great distance. That is fair. But some of the things that Ani does really does shock me. And I know that you yourself have probably had more adventures than I have. You know, you lived on the road. You've been to... <laughs> you guys can't see her face, but she's, like, thinking about it. You have! 
You were all, You've been to the Van Gogh Museum. I've never been to Europe. You've been three times. Yeah, but my adventures were always highly planned. And like, even when I was going and I've only been, oh, you know, I have been to Europe three times. I've only been once by myself, though. And it was highly planned and everything was like planned beforehand. Money was set aside. When Ani goes to Europe, she like boards a flight and just brings her guitar and doesn't have a place to stay afterwards. And I don't know if you've ever done anything. The first time. Yeah. (laughs) So like, what do you feel about that? Because I know that you also have had more, you know, like off the cuff adventures. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I was homeless, so having a place to stay meant finding um, a nice spot in the forest service land where you can camp for 14 days without a permit. But yeah. So yeah, I had some adventures off the cuff, but I did kind of plan them too. becoming a parent so young did limit my ability to have, uh, to be spontaneous. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and certainly once, I mean, you know, I maintained some spontaneity, but then once you started school, the travels pretty much stopped. Yeah. I mean, well, it's harder, but I guess like, I know for my father who wasn't a single dad nearly as long as my mother was and really wasn't a single dad with me at all (laughs) he has another son which she's had to deal with that for like the idea of being adventurous is like a really big part of his value system that he tries to instill in us and I know that even though you were more limited like before you had me you were off having your own adventures but it like, would you have been okay if I hopped a plane to Europe with nothing and no plans? Well, I probably would have sent you money. <laughs> would you have been okay with it, though? Or would well, you be like, I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> of course I would worry. I mean, that's what moms do. You know? Was it important to your development as a human to have some off-the-cuff adventures and to, like, go to fish shows and stuff like that? Oh, I think it's important for, yes, I I do think it was. I wish your brother would do more of that. He works so much. He's trying. I think it was it was very important to to get out of the area that I lived in, to experience things from different perspectives, to look at you know, even like um, you listen to the NPR station and each area that you go to and different things are covered and, you know, different perspectives and uh, peoples. I really love our great United States of America. And I think it's important for people to get out there and see it. Your dad and I had this goal of going to every national park and every national forest. And um, I think that that it's important to, to do those things. And his, our history is important. I don't know if you remember me dragging you down to Jamestown after the Pocahontas movie. Oh, um, yeah, no. <laughs> I was so pissed at Walt Disney about that. But, um, you know, (laughs) 
I think it's important to go there. I think it's important to go to the Smithsonian and and see the what is to be seen and it's important to talk to people and you know, yeah, I I I think that traveling is a good experience. It anything that broadens your horizons and opens your mind is good and it's important to be able to appreciate diversity and not only just you know diversity in every aspect not only like genetic diversity biodiversity but a diversity of perspectives that's true it's increasingly hard these days um for people to appreciate the you know a diversity in perspectives everything so one way or the other way and it doesn't have to be like that. And so I think that traveling is and having those adventures is, is, you know, it's like a, it's a shortcut to gaining an appreciation for a diversity of perspectives, because then you, you realize there's so many things that we all have in common, even though we feel the different way about some things. And Oh, I don't know if you remember the kids book that we had about the, um, I think it was called like, what is God or I don't know, but there was a parable in there about all the, uh, the people touching the elephant, all the blind men who touched the elephant. I don't remember that. Huh? They ask him, what is God? They give him an elephant to touch and all of the blind men are touching a different part of the elephant. And they all feel that it's something different. And they're all correct, but it's all part of the same thing. Okay, I see. That's fair. Okay, so kind of along those lines. But I know that my siblings uh, got more of or less of an opportunity to travel than I did as a kid, which was probably like fine for them because it gave them a little bit more um, stability in their school systems. But like you did... You did take me around when I was very small, probably because you were also very young. (laughs) And like, I did get to see a lot of things and that did diversify my perspective, I feel. And also like taking me, making me go to the Unitarian Universalist Church really gave me that same sense of like general inclusion. Was that important to you? And like, what other ways have you tried to do that with your children in general? Well, yeah, I mean, of course... It's important to me. I don't know. I always just tried to support you guys with your interests. With your brother, I mean, his passion. He's much more active individual. And so, <laughs> you know, with him, we traveled to different skate parks. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I remember that. That was not fun for me. <laughs> yeah. skater bros. Every city has a new skate park or multiple that you're going to spend hours in. (laughs) Let's go back to the book. So one of the other big points I wanted to talk to you about is, and you were talking about this a little bit before, about how you and Ani were doing a lot of the same activism stuff when you were young. So she's she's a radical. Did you gain any new insights about your own understanding of hierarchy while reading this book? Well, you know, I mean... I think so. I mean, there was a lot of reinforcement going on. And I think at the beginning, when I was first reading it, I was so excited. I could maybe even go back through messages I sent you about it. Like, it was like, she's so well written. And there's just a kernel nugget of 
you know, of wisdom on in every paragraph on every page. And sometimes there was so much of it that I had to set it down and let it digest for a minute. Yeah. Me too. You know, um, it was interesting, uh, what she said about the, the, uh, the women's festival in Michigan. I remember that. And, um, our neighbor in Montana had been a big fan of that festival, but it's, I thought, you know, like, I mean, she didn't like down talk it so much, but she did point out some aspects about how everybody had tried so hard to be sensitive Mm -hmm. that it made it a little bit ridiculous. And I, I living in my paradise of a town, Ashlyn, I sure do appreciate that because sometimes you get so caught up in you know, taking down the patriarchy and being correct that you um, fail to honor other people's perspectives or even their right to have one that's different than yours. Yeah. So that is actually something I wanted to talk. I mean, going back to the radical thing, I gained a lot of new understanding. The criminal justice stuff was really important to me. It's what what's that system of uh, response... restorative justice restorative justice yeah so that wasn't something that's not something i'm super familiar with i've written an article about it once being employed in schools in vermont but well they employ it here and uh thankfully that's you know i mean i know all about it thanks to your brother (laughs) well i think it's i think it's a really great idea and i really liked that she was like listen in order to end hierarchy we have to you know go to like we have to go to the people who are feeling most disenfranchised. And that doesn't necessarily mean where you are on the privileged totem pole. It means the people who are individually struggling because everyone struggles in different ways, right? Like there could be someone that lives the exact same life experiences as you and I and reacts totally different to it. Like we each have our own individual struggles. So like the idea of forgiveness was really, really important to me. Um, and I think that gets into kind of what you were talking about with the idea of different perspectives, because we come from two very different generations in terms of activism. Like you did a lot of the really great groundwork, but my generation is really the generation that's all about labels and has really gone into politically correctness, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But when we talk about like cancel culture on the internet, one of the really important things. And one of the things I try to kind of employ with Matt, like Maggie and I try to employ in this, this podcast is like a basis of understanding and forgiveness for when people aren't informed. Right. So I think, I think that like the idea of having, like, if you have a perspective that being gay is wrong, like, I'm sorry, but your, your perspective is wrong. (laughs) Like that is very much my attitude and where it is. But you have to be able to reach that person, right? To like sow a seed that's going to maybe grow and change their mind. And I'm not saying that you need to tell that person like, oh, I respect your perspective. I mean, yeah. I don't know. If you peruse some of the some of the ways that the le- people so far to the left get here, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Like, and I'm sure you've seen it with the extreme Bernie supporters. It's like, it's never, 
it's never okay to be disrespectful. Yeah, like there is even when, um, you know, I supported Bernie in 2016. I think that's probably no surprise to anyone who's listened to this podcast. <laughs> but, Me too. Um, but I also like <laughs> there was a lot and it's hard because Hillary Clinton is a figure who was so denigrated simply because of her gender in the media. And she's by no means a perfect figure. But in 2016, it was really hard to read fellow Bernie supporters' depictions of Hillary Clinton. And a lot of misinformation, like just factually, like the Pizzagate thing was spread and people believed it. And it was like, you people are supposed to be on my side. Like we're fighting for the same thing here. Why are you attacking somebody for their sexuality or their gender or calling them shrill or bitchy? Like that's just not acceptable. Well, it's still going on now and it's even to more. Like to Warren. Well, and so many, so yeah. many others. What about, Klobuchar. you know, <laughs> or, or any woman that tries to stand up and, and make a difference, you know, I mean, it's always, I don't know, look at what they're doing to Alexandria Exacio-Cortez. Do you know you can buy toilet paper with her face on it? That's disgusting. To be fair, I haven't seen any Bernie supporters doing that. I just kind of thought that was like the hard right being like, oh, no, we've got a woman in power. Oh, it is. But there's they're insidious, you know, their their appeal, like the the things, the way that they reach the the people that they're reaching and indoctrinate them. It's methodical. It's organized you know, we're going to have to do some organizing of our own. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I had, um, you know, being where I'm from, I have a lot of friends who are super conservative. And a lot of the people that I grew up with really love Donald Trump, like, love, love him. They're, you know, like the hardcore supporters that think he can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're, of course, entitled to their opinion. But the little boy who grew up across the street from me, you know, and we went to the same private school, had put up that fake video or the video of the two doctors in Bakersfield talking about needing to reopen that got taken down from YouTube. And so I don't normally do this, but I posted a response on that. And the response that I posted was the response that the American Academy of Emergency Physicians mm-hmm. and the American College um, College of Emergency Medicine put out as a joint statement. Yeah. So like, and um, oh, one of his friends just started like freaking out on me. Oh boy. And saying things like, have you ever been, um, I mean, it was like, he was suggesting sexual violence against me. Oh my God, are you kidding me? No, he said that herpes kills and asked if I had ever been dog-fucked raw. Did you report him? I did, and the post has been removed. You know, but it's interesting, you know, it's like my friend that made the post, he and I can agree to disagree Yeah. on that point. And he was like, well, this is something we don't agree on. And I'm like, yeah, we don't. You know, I can respect that. Yeah. But you know, the person who just gets right in there. And he called me a snowflake, too. (laughs) 
and told me I should get my hair did. Your hair did? Well, I did an Earth Day post with your sister that I made available to the public and I hadn't brushed my hair yet. Oh. The My Planet, My Pledge thing. I want to attack this man and that goes against what we're talking about and I'm very sorry. But yeah, you know, so my response to him was I just said, called him out by his name, Charles Duke. And I did look <laughs> at his I did look at his profile. He's a proud He's an essential worker, you know, he's at Walmart. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, your suggestion of sexual violence to me is both abusive and inappropriate. You have been reported. Yeah. Stay classy. <laughs> <laughs> and he responded with like, oh, I know the Facebook administrators by name or whatever. And at that point, I just muted it. So I wasn't bothered by it. But, you know, point is, is you can't get into it with people like that. You just have to kill them with kindness. Okay. Which is really hard to do. It is very hard to do. But in terms of like the rules, because I think, I think that's abuse. And that might be something even like different, even when we're talking about Hillary Clinton, like being abusive, period, is not okay. And I don't get the sense that that's what the people at the Women's Festival were doing, but it seemed like Ani was resistant to all of these, like, labels and stuff like that, and she found the labels themselves oppressive. And I I can, I mean, I could really appreciate her perspective on that. I mean, it's been a minute since that's towards the beginning of the book. And she does, she did say she regretted the way she handled the situation. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I ha picked out the Women's Festival for another reason, though. And I wanted to talk to you about this because you are um, a feminist that comes from a different generation than I do. And this is something that I do see happening a lot and kind of, I think, relates to maybe my generation's like need for rules and labels a little bit or like what a lot of other people see as our oppressive need for inclusion the idea she said that the women's festival the michigan's women's festival that we're talking about ended up being canceled because a bunch of artists decided they weren't going to play there anymore because it kept on excluding trans women which in my opinion is wrong also like trigger warning if you are trans that we're, we are talking about this stuff and i think it's still important to talk about even if we might have dis disagreements on opinions but if this triggers you like feel free to tune off and come back during the end of the episode and Ani said that she saw the need for both. And it kind of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. The idea that like, like we women have our spaces. Like we do have our own spaces because there are less trans women and there isn't, um, there isn't an equal amount of representation. Well, let me just say that when that was going down, she was one of the people that wanted them included and she was vocal about it. Okay. And, um, you know, and I think that maybe she regrets. I mean, it's now there's no festival at all. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, like having one is better than not having anything at all. And it is hard, you know, I mean, like Bruce Jenner becomes a woman and has a drunk driving accident. And is that year, the same year as he has a drunk driving accident. Hey. The, she has the, a drunk driving accident. She, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> she was the woman of the year. Yeah. That's bullshit. So now they're taking the, I see, you know, it's like in some ways it's like, 
the patriarchy taking that from us too. Yeah. No, and- I mean when it's people like um what's what's her what's Miss Jenner's name now? Caitlin. Caitlin. Okay. Yeah, you know, when it's people like that who It's hard. It's hard because there are okay, and uh yeah, so it is hard because like depending on when you transitioned um and I think most of the trans people that I've spoken to do seem to have a really great recognition. Like they do seem to recognize this, that like you are treated differently when you present as a man than you are as a woman. However, from my perspective, and, and it's hard too when we have people like Caitlyn Jenner, because Caitlyn Jenner is like not the best human at all. No, I mean, and that's like a poor example. I don't want to sound insensitive to, especially because, you know, However, I mean, it's whatever you identify as, you know, like that's your truth. And we, it's just, it's almost like, you know, that's the principle that we're supposed to be living by is our freedom of expression. And, you know, not everybody was born in the body that was meant for them. That's true. But it's also like, it is hard because when you, when you present as a man, your life is different. But I do think it's also hard because patriarchy really does affect everyone. Like it affects us women in direct ways, but it also affects men in very direct ways as well. Like the fact that trans women who originally presented as men don't feel like they can embrace that side of themselves or embrace any sort of femininity because femininity, which is, just an aspect of like what we consider to be feminine like it's just an aspect of human experience like compassion and caretaking like we're we're taking that aspect away from people that present as men period like they just don't get the opportunity to have emotions or to caretake or to do anything like to have that human aspect Uh, In some ways, I mean, in other ways, I mean, I would disagree and point to the fact that all of our spiritual examples of empathy, compassion, righteousness are men. Yeah, and and mono, mono, yeah, and the Abrahamic religions, most certainly. (laughs) And the Abrahamic religions, definitely. I mean, there's still like mainstream religions like Hinduism that have, you know, very big goddess figures as well. However, it's like not, yeah, Jesus is an example, Muhammad. It's still not the same way, though. Like, we don't see Jesus in a skirt, and we don't ever get to see Jesus acting as the role of mother, right? Like, we have we have a form of caretaking in society, but it is fatherhood, and fatherhood, it's just not the same not to say that fathers aren't important because they definitely are, but our societal perception of fatherhood does not take on the same burdens as motherhood. It It's also, it doesn't take on the same closeness or intimacy. Well, I mean, that depends on the family and the household. No, I'm talking about societal but, perceptions, not like fathers yeah, specifically. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not fair. Well, I mean, like, think about it. You've often told me the story about when you were, when I was a baby and you and my dad were still together, my dad would pretend to breastfeed me. Like he would take the bottle up and that's because there's this desire, like there's this close emotional bond 
um, that's sanctioned by society. It's not necessarily like men. Fathers and envy. Yeah, but like there's this close <laughs> emotional bond that mothers are allowed to have with their children that society just kind of like erases for fatherhood. The father is the patriarch figure. He's like supposed to be the breadwinner. He is supposed to be the hard one. He's supposed to be the discipliner. Or he's supposed to be the fun guy because he doesn't have the same burden of care that women have. And that burden of care is oppressive, but it's also like you are the provider, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I... That's some of that is society and some of that is biology. I mean, you know, we do the majority of the care for children because we carry them and that's how it is with our species. Yeah. You know, and um, that's why women tend to live longer and and such it's interesting i was actually listening to a ted talk about this last week <laughs> anyways um you know like in some society in some species where males do the child rearing yeah. like birds and stuff they they survive longer but oh interesting it's the spe- it's the gender that's responsible for the offspring that tends to have the healthier immune system you know, we have more de- genetic diversity than men do. Mothers and babies have a physical bond, and they thought this was biological because mothers do carry babies. But they found that when a father is the primary caregiver, because unfortunately in our society and het relationships, you know, men just aren't even if a man is doing burden, like the, some burden of caring, they usually aren't the primary caregiver. But when they took babies and put them in like, gay male relationships and they found that like that same bond was formed with whoever the primary caregiver was uh-huh so i wonder if it's like less biology and more just like a factor of of, of life i guess and one of the other things i wanted to touch on before we wrap up is that ani throughout the book does this other thing that's popular among 90s feminists and feminists before her where she does think of the world in kind of gendered ways and she recognizes that gender is fluid but she like categorizes femininity and masculinity in a way that I don't think you'd see a writer necessarily of my generation doing because we're yeah well we try to deconstruct the idea like because we've established (laughs) academically that gender is a construct my mom is making such a face right now. She's like, academically. <laughs> <laughs> you have, like in, social, in sociology, we've, de- we've decided that gender is a construct versus sex. You know? Thank you, Susie Greenberg. Yes. <laughs> and that's been going on for a while now. But because that's kind of an established thing within my culture, my generational culture, I think that we do rely less on... Although Maggie and I talk about femininity on the podcast you know, all the time. I wonder, okay, so you and, I mean, you say your generation, your culture, and I think about the young people that I know that are your age. And mm-hmm. because I, because I'm physically active, I, I know a lot of people that are your age. And I wonder if there's a, an education factor yeah. in what no, you there say there is. is, you know, 
It's um, also a regional thing too. Like I'm talking from liberal arts colleges in the Northeast. And. Well, I do feel like we, the liberal, I mean, I feel like the younger people here that are college educated mm -hmm. and that have liberal arts degrees. <laughs> liberal arts degrees make you liberal. <laughs> tend to think of, you know, they, they use all of the same inclusive terms that you do and they have all of these labels and it's informative, but then, you know, the kids that age that are not college educated per se, or that are in like um, technical institutes. Yeah. Cause we have some really good ones here. Don't seem to be using the same vocabulary. That's true. But like, let's say like my brother, he isn't college educated yet, but even in high school, he was still, I think more, and in middle school, like more aware of gender fluidity than I was at that age. So I do think it is slightly generational. I think a lot of high schoolers now, and it depends too on people's interests, right? And like your family and household and um, incentives. But I'm talking, I guess, about like people who are academically interested in feminism as a subject or in gender identity, right? Like, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be like well formed to be like this is femininity and this is masculinity, in the same way I think that Ani does. And hmm. I want to know what your thoughts about. Like, did you pick up on that? Because it it reminds me of a lot of like seventies era books that I've read, or even Tom Robbins, which I love. But it is dated now. Yeah, it's like it's dated language. It is, and um. You know, I mean, I pick up on it more now that you're saying something about it, for sure. <laughs> Me being of the same generation may have just, I don't think I, I mean, you know, like I focus more in on the patriarchy and, yeah, <clears throat> you know, like her, her activism work and the part at the end where she talks about voting and, but, um, yeah, I mean, I can see that the language is dated, and I catch myself saying inappropriate things all the time, and I have to, like, take some time and self-examine and do a little bit of retraining. Yeah, well, so I mean, that, I do that, too. Like, I think we all do. You know, it's just... But... um I don't know that necessarily everyone is quite as conscious as you and your group of friends. That's true. We are you living guys, in a little bit of a bubble. You, you know, I got to say, you had a really good education at that little college. State school for the win. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> all right. One last thing before we wrap up. I wanted to talk to you about Ani's nickname. It apparently means asshole in Italian. And I was wondering if that made you feel validated about the fact that my middle name, Magaya, means motherfucker in some language. Okay, so your father and I. Yes. We were reading this book written by Sessaweer Sereth called The Pagan Family Handbook. And he said that Magaya was proto-Indo-European goddess name that meant she who has the power. But however, apparently it's Odaya, which is, I think it's a 
It's Oriya is the language. Or and it could be Sanskrit too. So um anyways, yeah. The translation is he who fucks one's own mother. However, you know, it can also be used as a greeting. It can convey many feelings, love, anger, guilt. So it's versatile. But yeah, we thought we were giving you a goddess name. And your dad still can't even fucking spell it right. But whatever. It's M-A-G-H-Y-A. That's what's on my passport. So good. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. What but are you yeah, reading right no, now? That was, that was a really sad moment for me because I just recently found out that that's what it meant. And you have to understand that our, our chief intelligence officer at my company, he's, um, he's a lovely man. He's Sikh. So he probably, he's, you know, he, he has a lot of, um, you know, he spends time in South Asia and was probably familiar with what the word meant. We have a bunch, we have a couple of offices in the Philippines. So they asked, I got this email asking me to check the spelling of my daughter's name. And I checked it and I got back to the guy in HR and I'm like, it's right. And immediately, are you sure? (laughs) And that was the first time I Googled it. And I found out. And I told my story of woe to the bartender at Mount Ashland. His name is Kale with a C, so he totally got it. (laughs) Yeah, it was devastating to me. I mean, talk about your stupid hippies. I bet your dad doesn't have nearly as much guilt about that as I do. And you were all like, are you kidding, Mom? You just found out it's my best party story. Well, because I've I've told you several times, I just don't think you believe me. Dad's still in denial. He believes that it's spelled a different way. Um. <laughs> no, it's M-A-G-H-Y-A. And I even looked it up. And if you look it up, you can still find it like on Google Reads in that mm-hmm. section of Sussaware Sarah's book. And, you know, the whole reason he's able to sit home and write his pagan family books is because his wife is an actuary. What's that? Um, it's this, they're like, um, you know, actuaries or, uh, accountants with no sense of humor. Um, she can say that because she is an accountant. Do you feel better though, that Ani's name means asshole? Did you, did you cling on to that and feel, feel a little bit better? Not really. <laughs> it didn't diminish my guilt in any way, shape or form. Okay. Mom, are you reading anything right now? And if so, what? Okay, so right now, this particular, like today, I'm looking for something new to read. Because I Ooh. just rebuffed on the book, the mm-hmm. No no Walls on the Recurring Dream. I spent the last couple weeks re- reading sections of that because, you know, we were doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. And things have been kind of tough for me with the pandemic. I've been reading things like how to sew your own face mask. One of the books I'm I'm reading 
Children of Blood and Bone on audiobook right now. And I'm also audiobooking the Harry Potter series, which I believe by narrated by Jim Dale, I believe that might be free right now. If you Oh really? I should yeah. check. If you have a library card, you can also use something called Libby, which will give you access to all of your library subscriptions to audiobooks. I do have a library card. I think part of our libraries are reopening next week. Very cool. All right, Mommy, do you have any homework for yourself from this episode? Um, Are you going to tell your mom you love her? Um, yeah, actually, I got her a... <laughs> oh, God. Oh, so there's one part in the book. Get this. So Ani, Ani starts to make it. It's very similar. I could relate in so many ways. Like, she starts to make it on her own. And the first thing she does is, you know, like, move her mom up and move her in with her and give her her own section of the house. It was like the first house she'd ever bought in Buffalo and she says moving my mother in from me was by far the worst mistake I ever made as an adult (laughs) (laughs) so I mean I just I find her so relatable (laughs) so maybe you're just going to reread that section over and over again and be like somebody else understands um, no, but I'm definitely going to go see her the next time she comes through town. And I like her better now that she's a mom. You know, it's like I became a mom before most of my friends. And there's a certain level of maturity and perspective that you gain with having to put another person's needs ahead of your own. Mm-hmm. And, um, and patience. Because, like, you know, no matter how hard you plan or try to make the outcome of something be a certain way like you just can't take away free will Hmm. (laughs) it's just there and it's there from the get-go to to bring in chaos so I think that you know you develop a certain sort of um, acceptance understanding and patience once you've become a parent and I, I like seeing her play live more now that she's a mommy that's very cool she does talk about that in her book, too, about, like, how her children affect her songwriting and how she has to, like, slow down now. And before she just wanted to, like, pump things up, out. But now she thinks her work is better because she's forced to slow down. Yeah, and I mean, she probably, she can't travel as much because mm-hmm. I recently saw uh, Bela Fleck. But yeah, I need, okay, so my only homework is to find a new book, honestly. And maybe I'll try to educate myself more about these labels that you speak of that are so important to you. (laughs) Because, you know, in some ways, I feel like labeling things, it takes the magic away. You know, it's like this compartmentalizing and classifying and... But things are already labeled. I don't know that they're necessarily important to me. Um, You know, there are a lot of labels in terms of sexuality, but there's also a lot of delabeling that's going on that I'm talking about in terms of like femininity versus masculinity. And I'm not by any means an expert on it. Um, It was just something that I noticed within Ani's work that I don't see present in work that I read contemporarily. Okay. Hmm. 
my homework is to tell my mom I love her. Mom, I love you. Done. Gold star for me. Um, and also to mail out you and grandma's Mother's Day gifts, which will I'm sure you'll get late. And uh, yeah, why don't you wait a few weeks before you go to the post office, dear? Next week, you Maggie will be back, hopefully. And we will also have a special guest, my friend Elena. Um, she's going to be coming on to talk to us about, yeah, If You Leave Me by Crystal Hana Kim. It's about the Korean War, and it's really good. And we will be back with that next week. Okay, everyone, tell your moms you love them. Uh, make sure they're well, especially during these times. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.